Well, I want to thank you as a congregation for your love for Micah and his family. You guys have cared for him in a marvelous way, and that means so much to a father, and I know the same uh, goes for my wife, Renee. Uh, we're just, and of course, through the deep waters they've been in the last six months with Owen, and you guys have just shown so much love for them, and it's just, you know, from our perspective, we're so thankful for you, and we pray for you as a church, and we're so thankful for you and your uh, uh, holding forth the Word of God and ministry in the community. It's always a, son, a goal for a father for his son to exceed him, and it's a joy to see that happen in Micah's life and in his family. Well, we, uh, myself, along with at least 20 of your uh, men have been at a conference, as Micah mentioned, this last week, and they uh, heard some of the best sermons on the planet. And so they get to compare that with me this morning. <laughs> and so um, I am thankful that they were able to, uh, to hear that. And um, it's my privilege to open the word with that understanding that uh, there are very, very many faithful men in the world who can open the word. And it was really a joy to have your men as a part of that this last week. Well, light and darkness is a theme found throughout world literature, art, religion. Light and darkness is mentioned over and over again. And it's also mentioned prominently in the scriptures. Um, there are two books, Job and Isaiah, where light is mentioned more than 30 times. The Psalms and John have 20 or more references to light. And in Genesis, Matthew, Luke, and Acts, there are 10 or more references. And there are many more sprinkled throughout the Bible. More than 40 of the Bible books mention light. So it's, it's really quite prominent. And we're not interested in what world literature or art has to say about light. We're only interested in the scriptures. And our passage this morning tells us about how the light helps us, but also about one who bore witness to the light. And that is in John chapter 1 this morning. So if you could turn in the word of God to John chapter 1. So just a little introduction to the book of John. It's unique among the four gospels. It, uh, they all have their uniquenesses, their particular angles uh, that they write from. They all have a different audience. They all are trying to um, tell the story from a little different um, angle. They're addressing different groups of people. So, of course, they're going to be a little bit different. But if you read straight through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you get to John, you say, this is different. This has a different quality about it in the book of John. And this is good because it gives us a different, more complete understanding of Jesus and his ministry. It's uh, good because our understanding of Jesus 
would be missing something without John's perspective and John's way of writing. Well, our passage today begins four verses into the book of John. So the passage is John 1, 4 to 8. And they are influenced by the first three verses. And so we need to consider them briefly by way of introduction. The first three verses are, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These are powerful verses. They give us an understanding of Christ that removes all doubt about his eternality. The first verse, it says that in the beginning was the word. And you'll notice in the, your Bible, it's with a capital W. And it causes us to reflect on Genesis 1.1. Here, it says in the beginning was the word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. And that echo of Genesis was intentional. We're supposed to think about Genesis when we read John chapter 1. We're supposed to draw the conclusion instantly that they're referring to the same event from a different perspective. We're supposed to understand this connection. And when we connect these phrases, we are filled with a lot of questions like, who is the, or what is the word? How could the word have been present at the beginning? Why is John writing about it here? Now, it would take a study of the whole book to fully answer those questions completely, but we need to come to some preliminary conclusions in order to understand our passage this morning. John is telling us that when God created the world, Jesus was already existing. He wasn't part of this created world in John, in uh, Genesis chapter 1. Jesus already existed. He was outside of it, if you will. Now, as an illustration of this, think of a child and his Legos. He may build his little city. He may have all these buildings. He may even have some little cars. But he has created this situation, this little world of his. He is outside of his creation. And except through some miracle, he can't enter into it. He will always be outside of it. This is exactly what happened with Christ. He was outside of it when the world was created, but in his incarnation, many years later, he entered into that world. And when I mention many years later, that's another way of talking about the creation, and that is the entry of time. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, they lived eternally outside of time. But when the world was created, time began. The calendar started as a way of keeping track of time. It didn't exist before that. Jesus existed outside of that. 
And it's because anything already existing must be eternal, having existing, existed in eternity past. Now, this is where my Lego illustration totally breaks down. That was talking about the physicalness of the world the child has created. But when we talk about time, we're talking about something totally different. Jesus existed in eternity past. When everything else came to be, he already was. It's strange language, but it's required in order to understand this. And we need to note also the presence of the entire Trinity in creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, we already know about God the Father. And this passage here, in the beginning was the Word, tells us about Jesus' presence. And in Genesis 1.3, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so we have the Holy Spirit there. And then in Genesis 2.7, it says that the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, talking about the creation of Adam. And so all three of members of the Trinity were there at creation. The Godhead was there. It wasn't just an act of God the Father alone. Now I jumped ahead a little bit when I said that Jesus was there because when it said the beginning was the word and to understand that we simply need to look further down in John chapter 1 verse 14 and John helps us understand this. He's in John 1 14 he says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there we have it. The word was Christ. He came and dwelt among us. The word is Christ. He who was only a spirit from eternity past became flesh to remove all doubt to whom he's referring so these verses are so profound, they're really difficult for us to get our minds around. J.C. Ryle, the uh, bishop from over 100 years ago in England, a great expositor of the word, he said this about these passages. They give him a deep sense of the utter inability of any human commentator to enter fully into the vast and sublime truths which the passage contains. So true, difficult to understand, but they're so important for us this morning. So these first few verses tell us that when Jesus was preexistent, the creator is one with God. It's an amazing announcement. And our passage picks up in verse four. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So first of all, verses four and five. It's no secret that when you write something, or, you, or if you're a composer, you compose something, you try to include the main idea right at the beginning of your writing or your composing, and then you follow it up in the middle and at the end, uh, you may remember back to your high school English teacher. I recognize for some of us that's a long time ago. And you may not remember anything of your high school English teacher. But if you do, when they were teaching you to write, 
they would teach this principle. You introduce your idea right away. You have a thesis sentence and then you follow that through. Certainly true of the great composers. They may have a series of notes. It may, they may go up and down and then they follow that through their composition. I'm not talking about the little ditty songs that they have for pop songs today, but major composers. And so they may change that, that theme in the speed that it, would, it goes or how it's presented or the style throughout that work. Well, John practices this in his gospel. And these themes are carried not only throughout John, but into his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He's really brilliant that way. And the terms life and light are themes to which John repeatedly returns. So let's talk first about this term in verse 4, in him was life. Specifically, the word is zoe in the Greek. And it's used 54 times in the Gospels. That's almost three times per chapter in the Gospel and Epistles. And to see how John uses this at the beginning, at the end, we just read verse 4. Turn to the end of John, John chapter 20. There's only 21 chapters. But at the end of John, in verse uh, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by, leave, by believing, you may have life in his name. So he has it at the beginning, and this is, this is like the purpose statement for the whole book. He wraps up the book so we understand. And life is right there in the middle of these verses. So this, what is John exactly talking about then when he talks about life, if it's so important? We have a difficult task here to understand exactly what John is telling us. John speaks cryptically many times and He'll say very absolute black and white things and it kind of leaves us like that emoji, you know, and just kind of looking like this. What is John exactly saying? Well, on one side, we have this reference, clear reference, in verse 1 to the creation, in the beginning. And that helps us here. That's a physical creation and we're looking about the word, uh, uh, looking into the word life. And so we naturally think of beating hearts and green plants. That is physical life. And he is referring to that in one respect. John is referring to Christ being the source of biological life. There are other words in Greek for biological life, but this word can mean either. So he is this source of life with the creation event just referenced there. Jesus was there in Genesis 1-1 when we see this account of the creation. And we see what happens in Genesis 1 on days 3, 5, and 6 
we have the creation of plants, animals, and people. All types of biological life. So we can't miss the fact that animals and people were given breath at creation. Even the plants are living, though they don't breathe as people do. And it helps if we take another look at the Genesis account that tells us that man had to be given life. Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And so we see the union of this physical and the non-physical, sometimes called the immaterial or non-material life. And that's actually not all that God does. Hebrews 1.13 says that he holds the universe by the word of his power. And should he withdraw his support, the universe would fly apart. And of course, that means all life. But still, we've not entirely wrung all the meaning. In some ways, we haven't even looked at the most significant part of the meaning of the word life. As hard as that is to believe, because life, if we don't have physical life, we're not here. But there is another type of life, and that is spiritual life. You can have a body, you can be breathing, but that still fits under Paul's description from Ephesians 1, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, that says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So there's that spiritual sense in which we are dead before we're made alive. Our hearts can be beating, we're breathing just fine, but we are spiritually dead. Zoe, the Greek word, includes that. Paul follows that up in the same passage, Ephesians 2, a few verses later in verse 5. Listen, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So there is a way to be made alive through Jesus Christ. Christ gives us spiritual life or as John says it here in John 1, 4, in him was life. This is important foundational information. We know that spiritual life comes from Christ. Let's continue on because our message this morning is about the one who bore witness to the life, to the light. So we're talking about life. What's the connection with light? Well, here it is in verse four, the next phrase, and the light was the light of men. Again, John speaks very cryptically. And so, light is like the word for life. Enunciating my K's and F's are very important this morning because it gets very, they sound so close in English. But light is like the word life in that it appears many times throughout the gospel. 21, that's like one per chapter. 
And in our passage here, he makes an organic link between life and light. He uses the word was right in between. Life was the light. I referenced the English teacher earlier, so now I'll mention the math teacher. If you remember, when you had a story problem, that word is was a clue. That meant equal. Okay, if you missed that, you probably couldn't set up the formula right to solve the problem. When one train left San Francisco at 50 miles an hour and another one left L.A. going at 35, you know how that went. So, here he says, he uses a, a verb to be, is, he uses it with past tense, as was. And so, the passage is telling us that life is equal to light, spiritually speaking. The two are equal. Now, they're not equal in the sense that there's no distinction between them. There is a distinction. But he is saying they can't be separated. MacArthur says this, they are essentially the same with the idea of light emphasizing the manifestation of the divine life. And the gospel writer John loves a sort of expression. He's done the same thing in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. The word was God. So here he did it again. He's saying they are equal. Christ and the Father are equal. They're both God. And yet... Just like light and life, there's a distinction between them. They have the same essential properties, but they are equal. Now, we, John writes like this to make things clear by providing a contrast. And here's the thing, the reason with light and life. It takes light to expose and bring life. That's how they are connected. It takes light to expose sin and bring life. They work together to expose sin so people can experience new life. John 8, 12 says again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we desperately need this light to expose the darkness. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. In this passage, Paul takes up the themes of this theme of light and talks about how light exposes the darkness. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So Paul addresses this need for light. And there's clear contrast between light and darkness in this passage. Verse 9 says the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. In verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, <clears throat> but instead expose them. And then verses 13 and 14, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. So light is exposing sin in lives, specifically in our lives. And he wraps up this section in verse 14 with some scriptures from the Old Testament. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He is making this personal to each one of us as he talks about the light and how it, it shines in our own life. And he says to wake up. And then notice that light and life are in these next two phrases. Arise from the dead, that's talking about life, and Christ will shine on you. All these things are coming together, life and light. Amazing consistency among the scriptures. And so this message is for us this morning. Awake, O oh sleeper. There is sin to confront in our lives. There is much that we need to wake up and expose in our lives. There, are, uh, there is light that needs to expose deeds of darkness in our own hearts and in our own actions. And the scripture is calling us to do that. Because Jesus Christ is light. We are called to repent from them so that we can know life. So that we can know eternal life. And there is no hope of knowing eternal life without exposing sin in our lives and confessing that sin in our lives. And that goes on every day of our life. It isn't just a one-time event. We can't grow without this. We can't move ahead without this. We need to have the light in our lives, exposing our sin. William Barclay wrote, it has been truly said, and this is looking at it from the other way, not all darkness in the world can extinguish the littlest flame. No, we need light to expose our own hearts. So that's the light. Second this morning is the man or a man and that is John the Baptist so back in John chapter 1 verse 6 there was a man sent from John God whose name was John he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him he was not the light but he came 
to bear witness about the light. And so, in some ways, we learn about John here things that we don't learn in the other Gospels. And in many ways, John writes less about John the Baptist than the other Gospels. In other ways, he writes more. Less in the sense he doesn't tell us any of this biographical background about him. We don't learn about his birth like we do in Luke. We don't learn about how he lived, as the other Gospels tell us, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. Um, it doesn't tell about his character as much. The other Gospels tell us these things. But John was the last Gospel written, so he knew everybody already had those Gospels. And he was giving us something that the other Gospels didn't reveal. He assumes his writers already know about that. And it's helpful because it rounds out our understanding about this very, very unique man. It's kind of easy to overlook John the Baptist because he lived in the shadow of Christ. You know, you think of John the Baptist, oh yeah, he came before Christ. But what if he had lived and ministered at the same time as the other great prophets, say Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah, or even better, what if he would have appeared in the middle of the 400 silent years between Malachi and Matthew or the birth of Christ? He would have shined like a light all by himself, much like the great Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself said about John the Baptist, uh, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And so he's a great man. Jesus also said, for all the prophets and all the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. He said that in Matthew 11, 13 to 15. So he's counted as the last of the great Old Testament prophets. That, so that's high praise coming from the Savior. So we should see John the Baptist as an important forerunner. And one of the reasons he's so important is that it says in John 1, 6, our verse here, he's a man who is sent from God. How many could ever make that claim that they were sent from God? He had a very, very particular purpose. And that is what John reports on. Not on everything, but he reports on some of John's mission, his mission. Now as one who is sent from God, he had a commission from God. His birth, his ministry was not an accident. It was planned and anticipated by God. Earlier I read Matthew eleven fourteen that said he was Elijah who was to come. That all by itself is interesting because if you go back to Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 it says behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So a messenger is to come and then at the end of Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 it says behold I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike 
the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so we see here that this is John the Baptist. Jesus tells us that. And these were written 400 years before John the Baptist was born. So he's an important figure. All the Gospels mention him. They all thought they needed to include him in order to adequately tell the story of Christ. And John 1.7 gives the reason why he was important. He came as a witness to bear witness about the life that all might believe through him. Even before beginning to preach, John the Baptist had given people a clear understanding about who Jesus was and what he came to do. That was before Jesus began to preach. The identity of Jesus, he gives that in verses 7 and 8. And then later on in the chapter in verses 29 to 34, which we'll look at a little bit later, talks about telling, John telling about Jesus. So he tells about Christ's role in God's plan, the need to believe in him as a savior. So he is a witness about Christ. And John and his relationship with Jesus was very, very interesting. Their lives were so intertwined. If you'll remember from Luke in the birth narrative, um, uh, John the Baptist's mother and Jesus' earthly mother were friends. They were relatives. And they talked about their mutual pregnancies. And so their lives are very, very intertwined. And here in John 1, we see John the Baptist expressing extreme confidence in the ministry of Jesus, confidently telling him about our need for salvation through Jesus. But this is early in Christ's ministry. Things change later on. And we're surprised to learn that John actually expressed doubt about whether Jesus was the one. And if he had doubts, if he had gotten the story about the Messiah wrong, what should he do about them? Well, he should ask the Messiah. And that's what he did. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, says, now when John heard in prison, tells us something, John's in prison, things aren't going well, about the deeds of Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, are you the one to, who is to come or shall we look for another? He's doubting. John knew he'd, what he had been told, but as Jesus Christ ministered, he didn't have the glory that they all expected. In fact, Jesus experienced rejection and John the Baptist himself suffered. And this led him to this place where he had to ask Jesus, are you the one or is there someone else coming? Now Jesus was to have a world-changing ministry. But at that particular point in time, things weren't looking good to John. And remember, John didn't have divine insight the way Jesus did. He had understanding about Jesus because that was his mission. 
but he didn't see the whole picture. He was a man of God, but he wasn't sinless. So he was experiencing a great trial, and his greatest trial was yet to come. So how did Jesus answer him? After all, this is the forerunner, and he's expressing doubt. Well, it's instructive that Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't get after him. Instead, he just tells John, he recites the things he was doing. In Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Well, how did this passage make things better for John? Well, it assured him that Jesus was doing miraculous things that were prophesied of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He was fulfilling Old Testament promises. Isaiah 29, 18, 35, 5, and 6 were some of the passages that Jesus was fulfilling. And later, he commended John. In Matthew 11, 11, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen greater, one greater than John the Baptist. And he also said, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the new age to come. So John the Baptist was the man. And thirdly and final this, finally this morning is his witness. John's witness about Christ in verses 7 and 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. He was only a witness. That was John's role, to be a witness. He was not the Savior himself. Instead, his humble role was to point to someone beyond him. What a humble, humble place for this man to be, yet appointed by God for this important task. John the Baptist can, is connected to the light, to Christ. He bears witness to it. There's the main light, Jesus, and there's John who is reflecting that light like the sun and the moon. His focus was always Christ. Now there's three things being taught in this passage. First of all, John was not the light. And I'm saying this in this order on purpose because I'm going to show you something in a minute. It's very cool. In verse 8, John says, I'm not the light. Second of all, John was sent to bear witness to the light. That's in verses 7 and 8. And then, so that men might believe through him. That was in verse 7. And so that's kind of reverse order of those three verses. But look with me at this. John, the gospel writer, expands on this later in John 1, later in the same chapter. So my first point there, John was not the light from, from verse 8. Look down in verses 19 through 28. 
John expands on this. John 1.19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor the Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. He's not the light. And he expands on it. He makes sure that they know he's not the light. How much clearer could he make it? But then... John says that he was sent to bear witness to the light. That's what we see in John 29, picking up the next verse through verse 34. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So now he's explaining who Jesus is. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, expanding verses 7 and 8 up above, 29 to 34, show Jesus pointing to the light. And then, thirdly, so that man might believe through him. I'm not going to read these verses because there's too many here. But from verse 35 to the end of the chapter, we see men coming to follow Christ. And so John is simply making clear what he says in verses 7 through 8, expanding it later on in the chapter. So this is what was on John, the gospel writer's mind as he writes John chapter 1. But what can we learn from it? What can we take away from this? First of all, like John, we are only witnesses. We shouldn't think too much of ourselves. John was an important man in his, the history of the world, but he realized that he was only a witness. As important as he was, he was only a witness. He knew that he was only the reflected light, not the source of light. And a Christian's witness will be less effective if they think they are more important than they are. We are simply witnesses. We're simply ambassadors. We're simply here to tell what the word of God says about Jesus Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ 
crucified, which is what a witness is supposed to do. But then he goes on to say, in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The witness is not the point. It's what is witnessed to that's important. And John the Baptist understood this, and we should as well. Second, like John, we should bear witness to the light. In other words, we need to say something. There's a version of a quote by St. Francis of Assisi that goes something like, preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use words. You know, it's one of those things that's clever, but first of all, he probably never said that, if he ever said it. And if he did, it's wrong. We have to speak. John bore witness. He didn't walk around just being John. He said something. And it's important to have a holy life, but we should, shouldn't contrast that with speaking to others about Christ. We must say something. The word witness is actually a legal term for the one who's called into a trial and is asked questions. The person doesn't sit there and smile. The person says something. They bear witness. Nobody gets called as a witness just to sit there. So here's the thing. We must tell others about sin. We must tell others about depravity. We must tell others about the need of all mankind to fall on our face before our Savior, that we need a dead and risen Lord, that we need to confess our sin and repent from that sin, and that when we do, that we can be saved. We are a witness to that. And more than that, we need to preach that to ourselves on a regular basis. We need to allow the Spirit to witness into our own heart and that we need to confess ourselves and that we would love the Savior. People, we so desperately need, the world desperately needs this message. It is lacking. It is not being spoken. And we have this opportunity day in and day out we are witnesses like John was. Living a holy life might prepare the grand, ground for planting, but nothing will grow without the seed being planted. You can dig, you can plow, you can shovel, you can um, amend the soil, you can do all this stuff, but a seed and it must be there. Thirdly, we need to talk about Christ. May seem obvious, but sadly it isn't. In many pulpits across this country and around the world, Christ is admitted or, or simply alluded to. My wife and I, um, Renee, had a f privilege a few years ago of traveling in England, and we found ourselves in the city of Bath on a Sunday morning. And it's always been our practice to attend church even more when we're on vacation, if possible. And... We were right there, there's a cathedral in Bath, and once the greeters got over the surprise that we weren't just trying to tour the place, but we really wanted to be a part of a worship service, they invited us in, 
And of course it was beautiful, the sights and sounds were beautiful. But when it came time for the, I think they called it a homily, not really a sermon, he spent all his time talking about a poem that talked something about Christ, something Christian. And so Christ wasn't the focus there. This beautiful place, the focus was not Christ. That's not unusual. Sermons must, must preach Christ. We must speak of Christ to our friends, neighbors, and co-workers. We are like John the Baptist reflecting the light. We don't have an explicit commission like he did because he had a very specific role. However, we are to bear witness like he did. It says in Acts 13, for so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may be bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The next verse says that all those appointed to salvation were saved. And that's what we need to do as well. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work in our lives that we would be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for John the Baptist and his marvelous testimony, for his marvelous humility, his willingness to simply obey and follow you and do the task you called him to. Father, I pray that you would work in our lives and so that we would allow your spirit to work in us and also that we would speak to those around us the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.